a burning thing And it makes Come on. a fiery ring Here we go Bound by wild desire Come on I fell into a ring of fire Come on up I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire Everybody's the doing their seat, come on Woo! You want to keep going? Let's see if you can do verse two I fell into a burning I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire, the taste you, yes. of love is sweet. So let's talk, now that I got you worked up a little bit, what is he talking about? I mean, honestly, somebody give me some help here, because he's certainly not talking about that, like, he set himself on fire by accident, right? What, what is he talking about? Love. Okay, he's talking about love. What is he saying about love? It can put you in hell. It's what? It can put you in hell. It can put you... <laughs> yes! Get the band in here. We're closing in prayer. What else is he saying? It's passionate. Do you know who wrote this song? Johnny Cash. No. June wrote this song while they were dating and he was married. All right. I think that's the story. Ooh. Is Johnny in this room? No, he's gone to be with Jesus. All right. We'll let Jesus deal with him. Why is he using imagery like that? Why is he not just saying love hurts like hell? There is a song called love hurts, right? Anyway, well, we know because the imagery like the, the language, the poetry of it, doesn't it, it awakens something in us. It actually transcends the words that are being used. So the imagery, the creativity, it, it makes this imaginative, explosive connection between my heart and my mind. And when I hear poetry like that being sung, it actually allows me, and tell me if it's true about you, I get to put my own story in that. Like, if he just said, hey, guys, love hurts, like, he just wouldn't do it. And we know that. We intuitively know that because we experience that. Now, we're starting this study on the book of Revelation, and Revelation is much like this. There's lots of imagery here. There's lots of stuff that's hard to understand. But all the imagery, everything that's happening here. It's trying to awaken our heart and our head connection so that it can retool the way we see ourselves, reframe the way that we see our lives, and reframe the way that we see the world. So we have an agenda when we're doing this Revelation study is to rewire the way that you think. And the reason that it's kind of hard and why, why it's hard to come to the book of Revelation is because it was written to an original audience that understood a lot of this imagery. So if we fast forwarded a thousand years from now and somebody found a newspaper 
and they open it up and there's a political cartoon and it's got an elephant and a donkey in it, they might look at that and go, what does that mean? Like, what, what are they trying to say? But if you opened up a newspaper today, you would know exactly what that means. It represents, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats, and you would get the humor. So we have to work a little harder than the original readers did for us to better understand. You got that? You with me? Because today is loaded with imagery that you're going to go, I just don't, I don't know what that means. And you're going to discard something that's really intended to awaken your heart and your head together to change the way you see your life. In fact, I love that how simple this sermon is going to be today, because if you don't get what I'm talking about today, you're going to be ineffective and unproductive in your faith. And your Christianity is just going to be this thing that you go to on Sunday morning because you're religious, because that's what you do versus living a spirit filled, awakened life. Wow. That was kind of dramatic, wasn't it? Okay, so remember what we're about to read. Courtney's about to come and read for us. Uh, come on up. And remember the church is under persecution. They're suffering. Even John the Apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, he's actually in prison uh, on the island of Patmos. The church is suffering. They're struggling. They're trying to understand the present times in light of the promises of God. And they're wondering, when's Jesus coming back? And uh, so they're asking a lot of questions. And this is the very first chapter. And what I want you to remember is the entire book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's not that Jesus is going to win. It's that Jesus has already won. And we'll talk a little bit about more about that. But this in-between time of when he rose again and ascended into heaven and his return, this, this season that we're in is called the last days. And even though he's already won, what happens here matters. How you live really, really matters. How you believe and frame your reality really, really matters. So we're going to try to reframe that a little bit. Ready? Ready. Yeah. Okay, let's go. Gordon, thank you. John's vision of Christ. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you have seen and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, or Sardis, sorry, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Well done. <laughs> Everybody in this room should be saying, thank God that's not me up there reading those. <laughs> I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was something like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the, key, the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for your word. And now we confess to you, Father, that uh, we cannot bridge that uh, that 12-inch gap from our head to our hearts and to bring transformation to our hands and our feet. We need your spirit to do that. We pray, Lord, that you would move in such a way that, Lord, um, it would leave us different than how we came in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, last night, uh, Nashville Soccer Club, uh, I know, and they gave it their best shot, didn't they? And if you don't know, uh, last night they were playing for what, 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 what were they playing for? Because I don't know. Okay, what I do know is there was someone very special at the match last night, and his name was? We all know that, you know? And it's incredible because everybody that paid money to be there and to be present, every television camera that was there was waiting for the moment when Messi was going to walk out. The greatest soccer player of all time was going to walk out from underneath the stadium holding the hand of a small child onto the court. Every eye was on him. That's what this is, is that as we start the book of Revelation, every eye is on Jesus. And Jesus, it's like if you were there, was anybody there last night? One person. Two, three, I got three, I got four, four. Do you think there's any way that you could properly describe what happened last night during that game to where we could experience it the way you did? No. And this is, it's true about this. John is telling you what it's like to encounter Jesus, but he's telling it to you in a way, the only way he knows how to tell it to you because he can't rightly describe the grandeur of what's happening here. And so what he's doing is he's taking all these Old Testament uh, imagery, all this Old Testament stuff, and it's almost like he's grabbing all of it and putting it in a bucket and then just dumping it on top of Jesus. Because you say that again? No, I'm not saying that again. <laughs> Even Siri wants to know, who is this Jesus? So John was writing to mainly a Jewish audience who grew up with these stories. And so the way he's describing Jesus here are ways that they would get, they would understand. He's saying something more than what he's saying. That love is like a burning fire. He's saying, awaken the history of your childhood and the stories that you've heard since you were a kid and your understanding of these things and now applying them to Jesus. Okay, so let's go for it. In verse 13, it says, he is a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash across his chest. The hair on his head were white like wool, as white as snow. Let's just stop there and let you know that I'm more like Jesus than you are. <laughs> you may laugh at my gray hair, but all you people with color hair. His hair was... 
On his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire coming out of his eyes. What? His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters, loud. In his right hand are held the seven stars, the churches, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Is he being literal here? Or is he trying to help us understand? Like, for instance, when he says the son of man, boy, if we go back to Daniel and we study how Daniel talked about the son of man, he was talking about there's going to be one that's coming. He is the son of man. He is the prophet and the Messiah. The one is both God and man that's going to come and rescue the world from its sin. And so when he uses this language here, the one that was promised is here. And what is he like? Well, he's wearing this robe. And this robe is, if you grew up going to the Jewish temple, you would understand what he's describing is a priestly garment where the, the priest would wear the sash across his chest, but not just any priest. It was the high priest. So the one that was promised, the one that was prophesied about has shown up and behold, he's the high priest, the priest of priests. He's the priestiest of all priests. And it says his hair on his head were white like wool. This is symbolic of age and experience and wisdom, insight, dignity. It's not a young person, somebody who has forged through time, the ancient of days. His eyes are blazing fire. Tons of Old Testament imagery where this is used to describe discernment and the ability to see beyond what you can see. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. Then fiery feet of bronze. He's stable. He's strong. He's unmovable. There's nothing that can move him. And his voice is powerful, stronger than what you could possibly imagine. And then the sword of his word. I love this. You could do a deep study on this because there's the double-edged sword is mentioned a lot of time in the Bible, but it's always mentioned from the concept of wielding a double-edged sword. But look what the writer here does is your ability to wield a sword with your hands. Jesus doesn't need that. He's so powerful that his words are like a double-edged sword. That him just speaking wields the same power that a mighty man with a sword would wield with his hands. And he's a son of glory. He's the source of all life. Source of all light. Grasp what he's saying here. He isn't saying Jesus is powerful. He is saying that Jesus is the source of all power. He's not saying that Jesus is wise. He's saying that Jesus is the fountainhead of all wisdom. He's not saying that Jesus is insightful. Look how insightful he is. He's saying he's the author of all incitement. He's not saying that Jesus is light or is light. He is saying that all light flows from Jesus. Jesus is not alive. He is life. He is the fountainhead where all life flows from. He's not saying that he has knowledge. He is saying he is the fountain of all knowledge. He's not saying that he is loving. He is saying all love finds its origination in him. He is the alpha. He is the omega. Everything started with him. Everything will end with him. There is nothing greater than him. That is our Jesus. And here's what's crazy. Think about this. 
When you and I compare so that we can better understand, we typically compare greater to lesser. Like he's as tall as a tree. Well, he's not. Trees are always taller, greater, lesser. But he is tall. Or he's strong as a bull. Well, he's not. A bull is stronger, but greater, lesser. She's as fast as the wind. Not really. Wind's faster, but you get the idea. That's not what's happening here. What's actually happening is the inverted. That even the illustrations that I'm giving you were originated from him. He crafted them, he made them, and they are all lesser than him. Even those can't capture the fullness of who he is. Just so we can have some kind of idea of who he is. It's kind of like when you study marriage. If you study in the New Testament, you realize that God didn't wake up one day and go, look what they're doing, they're getting married. Like, that's incredible. That's a great illustration of Jesus and his church. No, Scripture says God invented marriage so that you would have some kind of idea of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Really. So Jesus originated before marriage. And that's what we're seeing here. I'm trying to, I'm trying, I'm going to fail. I'm failing. But you got to help me. Let your imagination run wild. This is so magnificent of an image. This is such a beautiful picture of how great your Jesus is that when John, his best friend, the beloved disciple, saw Jesus, he fell on his face as if he was dead. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I was dead. What is happening? Can we just camp out there just for a minute? Like, what's this, I see, you know, sword coming out of his mouth, and I'm dead. Well, we have to go back to Isaiah, because we get a little bit of a, a better picture, somebody else who experienced the throne room of God, the glory of our Father. And we see how he described it, and it gives us a little bit more understanding of what's going on with John, that he would see this image and collapse. It's going to help us because of where we're going, okay? Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6 after he experiences the cherubim and seraphim, you know, holy, 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 and he completely freaks out and says, woe is me. In modern day language, oh crap, you know? Woe is me, I am undone, I'm dead. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes has seen the king, the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's going, I see you, I see me, I'm dead. I'm done. Even Peter had the same experience when he first met Jesus. Remember when he caught the fish and he came to shore and he said to Jesus, he didn't go, you are the high king of heaven, Messiah, the great fisherman of all time. I'll go wherever you go. No, he says, go away from me. Why? Because Lord, I'm a sinful man. That's what Peter did. What we're seeing here is John, Isaiah, and even Peter, and you and me asking this question, do I belong here with the holy? Do you? I mean, I, I, know, I know I'm forgiven. I mean, we talk about that a lot here. I know that Jesus went to the cross for me. I know that he took away my sin. But can I be honest with you? Sorry. Sorry. I know you're so embarrassed right now. 
Don't be. You're among friends. I live with kind of a vague, kind of nagging sense that that's not true. You know, I kind of live with this. I know I'm forgiven, but also this, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I think. You don't know what I said. You don't know what I left unsaid. You do not know me. And guess who knows me? Me. And when I know me, what's really hard is I don't know if I'm really forgiven or if I belong with that. And the reason that I have a hard time feeling like I belong, like right here, because you guys, you all appear so holy. Like literally, you sang during the worship songs, you know, the Markhams came up and everybody's happy, you know, and everything. Everybody seems to have it all together. And, but when I look inside me and I go, man, it is jumbled. It is like, you don't know what's happened with me. You don't know my sexual history. You don't know my, sex, my current day sexual deviations. You don't know about my relationship struggles. You don't know about my war with anger. You don't know about my war with fear. Like, we have all this stuff going on inside of us. You don't know about my fear of the future or my regrets of the past. I don't know if I belong. You don't know how much I've sinned. When, when Peter goes, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. I get that. But walking the streets of heaven with the high king of heaven, I don't know. Life's kind of taught me that, though, you know. I, I grew up in a neighborhood. It's kind of a poor neighborhood. And there was only one house in our entire neighborhood that had a pool. Uh, and guess where it was? Right next to my house next door. And they had a high school daughter that was my age. And she loved to throw pool parties. And I knew when she was throwing a pool party because I wasn't there, but I could hear it in my driveway in Louisiana, 100 degree heat. And all I could do is imagine what that pool must feel like to be included, knowing I'm not included. I don't belong there. They don't want me there. So I'm just going to go inside and not listen to it. You ever felt that way? Do you belong? I mean, seriously, do you? This is critical. This is the break moment. This moment right here when I'm asking you, do you belong in the holy? This is so critical for you that if you, if you misstep on this, you're going to hate Midtown. Trust me. You're going to hate it because you're going to just turn this into like a place to come and like, you know, just go to church. And you're going to be surrounded by a bunch of unbelievable sinners who are needing grace. Because let me tell you, do you belong? Jesus always, always, always through the New Testament gathered the worst of sinners. He did. He gathered prostitutes, thieves, thugs, killers, like losers, people that abandoned him and betrayed him and lied to him. I mean, the worst class of people, he gathered them all and poured his grace on them. And you know why? So that you would know that where your sin increases, his, ingrace, his grace increases even more. 
In 2 Peter chapter 1, it gives this beautiful list of things I can pick up and begin to start adding to my life that God has given me. They're just beautiful ways to begin to mature and grow. But then he says this, that if you possess all those things that we're talking about, and you have them in even increasing measures, there's something that if you don't have, it's going to make you ineffective and unproductive in your faith. Well, how is it that I could have all this stuff over here and there's one thing that if I don't have, it's going to make me ineffective and unproductive? What is it? And Peter goes on to say, it's because you've closed your eyes to something. Well, what have I closed my eyes to that all these gifts of God no longer have authority and power in my life to heal me and give me purpose and live this rich life with Christ? One thing, that you have forgotten that you've been forgiven of all your sins. And that forgotten word is an interesting word because it's not forgotten like, I can't remember where I put my car keys. It's you willingly close your eyes to the reality that you have been forgiven. And you choose not to pick it up. And for some reason, you decide you're going to live in the shame and, and the self-abuse of not letting yourself be forgiven. It's like living in a prison cell that has no door on it. And you're self-contained because you don't want to go out. And the Lord has gone, come on, you are free. Run free. And you're like, no, 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 no. I, need to, I, I deserve to get punished more. <laughs> I may have just talked to somebody's mother just there. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 24 says, Jesus, he's the mediator of a new covenant. And this is a covenant of forgiveness. Grace beyond your imagination, this high king of heaven. His sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel which means what he did on the cross and through the power of the resurrection speaks a better word than anything in your life, no matter what you've done. Let me try to explain it, and then I'll be done, okay? So we have this picture in Revelation chapter 1 of this, this Jesus that is so powerful that his words sounds like rushing water. Have you ever been at a waterfall and you can't even shout? because somebody's sitting next to you, you know, and they can't hear you like that powerful Jesus who doesn't need to even pick up a weapon. He just needs to speak it. And whatever he speaks happens like that. This all powerful, there is none like you. There is no creature. There's no nothing that even comes close to your glory. What does he do with all that glory? What does he do with all that power? All of that. We'll go to chapter five of Revelation. Because we have this scene where the elders, the 24 elders are around the throne of God and there's a scroll in the throne of God. And in that scroll is the answer to all of life's ills. It is the answer to making every bad thing untrue. And John is weeping because he's like, somebody's got to open up that scroll, unleash the promises of that scroll. Who can do it? And nobody was worthy. And finally, one of the elders Listen to verse 4. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion, the lion of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and the seven seals. And so John's weeping and this elder comes up and says, hey man, Lighten up, bro. 
No tears. Let me tell you what's coming. The Lion of Judah. And boy, that's, man, that, that's exciting. Like, Jesus is a mighty lion, you know? Finally, he's going to conquer the enemies. He's going to set everything right. Look at verse 6. Because John turns around to behold the lion, and look what he saw. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And it goes on to talk about that all of heaven bowed down and worshiped. It's not like the lion went away. It's God saying, you want to know what a lion looks like in heaven? It's not just a lamb. It is a little lamb. God became a little lamb. And now he sits on the throne with his throat cut. Why? Because he sacrificed himself for you. How does Jesus use all that power? To come after you. So that you can stand forgiven. So that you can stand holy. That you can stand righteous. And Jesus is saying, I paid for that and I'm pouring it on you. I dare you now to believe it. Because here's what happens. If you believe that you're forgiven, oh, life is going to be a wreck. It's going to mess you up. Because then once you start believing that you're forgiven and you start believing that you belong in the holy, in fact, the holy is incomplete without you there. That's how much you're a part of the family of God now. That, that if once you start believing that's true about you, then Ephesians 1 starts to blow up your mind. Because Ephesians 1 says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who sits on the throne. That, that Jesus, because he, he gave himself, he became a lamb for me, who has blessed us. Let me make it personal. He's blessed you in the heavenly realms with every, say it with me, every, let's do it again, every, how many? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's you. When I understand that I am forgiven and I am holy, then I begin to understand that I have received from God every spiritual blessing that God has to give me, he's given me. Every one of them. I start becoming like a snot-nosed, greedy little rich kid. No kidding. My daddy's rich. I know he's rich, and I'm spending his money. Seriously. That's what reframes my reality. Now I understand everything in my life is a means by which to be blessed and to bless. Everything in my life is a means that I am blessed, I will bless. That even my good times, I'm blessed and I'm blessed. My hard times, I'm blessed, I'm going to bless. My struggles with maybe your sexuality, I'm blessed, I'm going to bless. Maybe your struggles in your marriage, I'm blessed, I'm going to bless. Now you begin to reframe your life as everything is an opportunity to better understand that you are forgiven, you are holy, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ, and he is asking you to live out of that promise. I'll give you one example and then I'm done. And then the rest is up to you, okay? I've done what he's asked me to do. So... Last week, um, I decided to, it's time to go get a new pair of running shoes. And so I go to my favorite running shoe store, 
and I go in and they have all these clever machines that you can stand on and they measure your weight and your feet. And he says, your feet may be the most beautiful feet that we've ever seen in this store. <laughs> See, I hear that all the time, thanks. Uh, and so I told him what I'm gonna be doing. I said, this is what I need it for. He says, great, he bring on some shoes. And he starts fitting me and he goes, that's him. And I said, okay, you're the pro. These feel great. All right, let's, let's get them. And we start talking. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you that I was hiking through Percy Warner Park and I ran into a guy kind of my age with a backpack on. I said, hey man, what you training for? And we started talking and he looked at me and he goes, hey, I know it looks like I'm hiking, but I'm actually praying. How can I pray for you while I hike and pray? And I'm like, oh, that was so great, man. Somebody from my kingdom is getting bold as a member of that kingdom and wanting to bless a complete stranger, not knowing I'm in the kingdom. Like I knew, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. I love it. And so the guy that was helping me with my shoes, I'm like, oh, turn around, turn around, pay it forward. So I said, hey, you know, when I put these shoes on, I'm going to think about you, I'm sure, because you helped me. And uh, a lot of times I pray when I run. Sometimes I pray, God, help me, because I'm about to die. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes I pray for, how can I pray for you? And the whole conversation changed. Compl he says, what? I said, yeah, I'd, re I'd really love to pray for you. Would you care to be uh, vulnerable enough for a moment just to tell me how to, how to pray for you? And we started talking. We started talking about spiritual things. And it just changed the whole exchange. So I left. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. So the next day, I go for a run in my new shoes. I get about a mile into it. And the shoes were horrible. Like, my feet were slipping in them. Like, they were rubbing blisters on my feet. And I go about three miles and turn around. And I go back. And I'm, I'm walking back home. All right? And here's what's going through my head and my heart. See if you can relate. I hate this. I, I hate this. Because... Either I'm going to pretend this, doesn't, this didn't happen and throw these shoes in the back of my closet and go get another pair of shoes, or I'm going to take these shoes after being out in them in four miles and take them back to the store and try to convince them to exchange them for me. Can you relate to that? When it, does, oh, you guys all love conflict. Y'all are amazing. <laughs> Y'all are so grown up. I'm like, oh, geez. So... I'm, I'm just like, I hate this. This can't be God's blessing for my life. This isn't possibly the fruit that I have been forgiven, made holy. All his blessings are mine. Be a blessing. This was, this is so irritating. And I don't want to do this. And God, you just don't seem fair. I don't know why you would let me drive all the way down to Brentwood to do this. Now I've got to turn around and go all the way back down there. Don't I have better things to do for you and your kingdom than this right here? I don't want to do this. I want you to see how small this is and put it over your life. So here's what I'm thinking as I'm walking up the store. I hope that guy's not there. Because <laughs> I kind of feel like, man, this isn't fair. Like, and I walk in, who greets me? The first person to greet me is him. I said, hey, man. Shoes were horrible. <laughs> and I said, uh, I don't know how this works. I can't wear these. So either trash them and let me buy another pair, but I need some help. And he put his arm over my shoulder and he goes, hey man, we'll take the shoes back, no problem. Let's get you in a pair that works. And I was like, angels were singing. 
Here's what happened. He brings out like three more pairs. We never talked about shoes. We continued to talk about the Lord and what's going on in his life. And did he give me a better pair of shoes? Yes. But when I'm walking out, here's what the Lord said. It was never about the shoes. Amen. And guess what, friends? It's never about the shoes. That's what reframes our lives. We are forgiven. We are holy. We are his. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing so that when we leave here, every encounter is divine. Every moment is his. He is moving across this city and he's asking us, the church, to wake up. Open your eyes and see what you have that this city is so hungry for. They're so hungry for glory, they're paying a thousand bucks to watch Messi walk into a stadium because it's glorious. But we know the root of that desire is we desire to see the high king of heaven who comes and calls us sons and daughters and makes us his own. That's all I got to say. Let's pray. Father, we pause now and tell you we are stubborn. We're afraid. We shrink back when you ask us to run in. We complain and we argue and we find it so difficult to really believe that we belong, that we're yours. And it just feels like sometimes life is rolling over us. And you're asking us to lift our head and see our Jesus. And in the same way, Jesus, that you put your hand on the shoulder of John and said, hey, John, it's me. I've won. Lord, would you put your hand on our shoulder right now? As we're about to worship, Holy Spirit, would you do what only you're capable of doing? And that is rescue us. Set us free from years and years and years of believing that we are what we do. And rescue us into the work of your hands. That we are what you've done. And let us even for a moment smell and taste that freedom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.